I remember years ago working for an advertising agency and we were presenting to the client the idea of a television commercial and a campaign that would help this organization celebrate 60 or 90 years in business. I can't remember. Let's say it's 60. And we put together a marketing plan with a, an accompanying set of media activities that came to about £150,000. Now, this is a long time ago. This is maybe 18 or 19 years ago. And I remember thinking that we were trying to present uh, the production of a television commercial for about 80 or £90,000. The same thing today can be made for around... 2,000, 1,000, probably not less than 1,000. If you were going to spend 100,000, you'd probably end up owning 80% of the shares in the TV company. And so over that period of time, you've seen the cost of entry into certain media channels and the cost of creativity decreased dramatically. And I'm loath to say it has democratized creativity in that way, but Fiverr, Upwork and a few of those other portals can allow you to get access to designers across the globe that within 48 hours can turn you around a logo for 40 quid, can put a video um, bookends for you, top and tail for a thousand pounds, 500 pounds, 100 pounds, whatever. And there's a huge distortion in the idea of value, price, quality, all that sort of stuff. I was thinking about that this morning as I was writing content for my own website and my own blog and the desire to get onto ChatGPT and fire in a couple of prompts followed by some keywords and all that sort of stuff is really strong and it's one that I've been able to avoid for my client's work but not for my own because it's a time thing because I'm just trying to get content out uh, on my own website because I know I need to be doing something but I'm just not able to devote the time which is wrong on every single level because I need to make time for that that's going to change that's okay but what I've been finding is that this idea that a logo can be done for 50 or 60 quid or that a video can be done for 20 quid 30 quid or 40 quid is distorting the view of creativity um, and what creativity really means and what it should mean to, to everybody, um, but especially in the communication business, whether we're all in the communication business, so I guess creativity is important all the time. I spent a bit of time this morning trying to find a really cool and hip quote on creativity that I could use in this, but, you know, you don't really have to dig into um, Google to find a, a quote to endorse the importance of creativity in our lives. I'm just trying to say I couldn't find a quote. But you take a look around you, you take a look at anything that has any value in your life. And I come back to the word value and the importance of that. What value does music play in your life? What value does um, art, painting, poetry, reading, writing all that kind of stuff that can be automated now on ChatGPT or Midjourney in seconds, and it's free. So we talk about the, the, the triangle with the three sides, the time, quality, and cost, and you can pick any two. And these 
AI platforms allow you to kind of pick all three, which is cheating. Um, but the idea that in sales, we are always talking about um, our value, value proposition, customer value, demonstrable value. And it's really difficult sometimes to articulate the value of what you're selling against somebody else's and try and make yourself stand out in the marketplace. For people who work, work in the creative sp space, whether they write songs, whether they do uh, voiceovers, whether they're painting, whether they are um, animators, whatever it is, they don't really have to tell people what the value is because the value is on display. Um, it can be seen and it can be heard. And there's a bit of a conflict, I think, going on um, in, in, those, in some industries who genuinely have stopped seeing the value in creativity and will continually buy from the cheapest resource they possibly can, which is a bit like writing content through ChatGPT unless you're able to really brief the thing out properly that you've got a good picture in your head of where you want it to go because then it lacks authenticity and um, to a degree any kind of power outside of search engine optimization. I look forward to finding out what Google and the other search engines are doing and how they're treating um, AI content because I'm sure that's going to be somewhere either further down the line or maybe not as far as we think. I got a chance to watch a fair bit of TV over the weekend and I was watching two documentaries that I believe are Channel 4 and BBC. The first one is Paula about Polly Yates and the second one was The House of Maxwell. So way back in the mid to late 1980s, I spent some time studying in the northeast of England, just about the same time that Channel 4 broke and just about the same time as the pop culture music show The Tube launched from Tiny Studios, about 50 miles up the road from where I was studying in Middlesbrough. So one Friday afternoon, we got tickets. I still have the ticket stub um, because at that time it was kind of a really, it was a brilliant, brilliant thing to get a ticket for for the for this program. This was a real cultural departure. Musically, prior to that, it would have been top of the pops with the usual presenters, as you can as you can imagine, um, or something like the Old Grey Whistle Test, which was few and far between. But the tube had made itself very popular because it was bringing live music to a studio, not dissimilar format to Top of the Pops really, but it was more chaotic, more uh, anarchic, is that right? Is that a word? Um, and it was a bit mental, and the two presenters, Jules Holland, who used to play keyboard, piano with Squeeze, and Polly Yates, who at that stage was probably better known for being Bob Geldof's wife. 1986, is the year after Live Aid where Geldof was beatified. And, um, you know, from a, a perspective, live, living in, in England, or sorry, coming from Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland in the 1980s and spending some time in England was probably a really wise move. Um, it was very tight around Mid-Ulster at that time politically. And so living over in England or any part of the country that wasn't Northern Ireland was probably a good thing. And getting that exposure to music and getting that exposure to culture, you know, TV, being in a TV studio was a big thing. And 
seeing these bands that night Talk Talk played they did a version of the song Talk Talk um, The Art of Noise had Dwayne Eddy doing the, it was the Art of Noise song and I think Art of Noise may have contributed to the soundtrack to the Tube programme and Big Audio Dynamite launched the video to E equals MC squared although they weren't in the studio and I think there was another band or two bands that night but it was a brilliant experience and in amongst it all Polly Yates and Jules Holland were walking around just um, so accessible and as mad behind the scenes as they were in front of the camera and so whenever I was watching the documentary on Paula um, I found it very strange that I was watching from 30 or 40 years on I think from Channel 4 and her 1985 we'll do the miles yeah 40 something years years on watching it but finding myself guilty of having judged her in such a way way back when she was with Bob Geldof and soon to be with Michael Hutchins and everything that went on around her and of course only now been able to acknowledge that the propaganda of the media was so strong that you tended to believe that Bob Geldof was a saint and that any woman who was doing to him what was alleged that Paula Yates had done was wrong when in effect it's not anybody's business and just simply because we're all kind of whores for that kind of media content that we all get involved in it we buy our popcorn kick back the seat and watch it all fall apart. But I watched the programme. Um, somebody having worked in newspapers in London in the 90s, um, all the way through the 90s, and kind of having had some kind of admiration for Bob Geldof because he was the Irish guy from the Irish band who did real well and who was this catalyst. Again, propaganda catalyst for Live Aid. Mid-year was just as responsible, but from any documentary you will watch on that, you will see that Mid-year was airbrushed either strategically out or by default by people who are around Geldof, and he got all the credit and the accolades for it. And it's a really ironic kind of sadness that um, Bob Geldof and Polly Yates were sat beside the present-day king and his wife at the time, Diana Spencer, and between Diana and Paula, they dominated the front page of media for a decade, maybe longer. But I was really troubled to watch it and know that I, knowing that I had worked in media for the Mail on Sunday at the time, and um, those papers like The Sun and The Mirror people the news of the world had all been involved in hacking mobile phones and telephones to get information on celebrities on people who had died you know and those are the tricks they played but you can see clearly the attacks that the press made on her life when she was alive when Michael Hutchins had died and within 24 hours they wanted to break the news that the man who she thought had been her father wasn't in fact her father but it was somebody else and they hounded her and hounded her and hounded her and hounded her. And they're all sitting outside her home with their big uh, tripods and cameras all talking to each other as if like their job is in some way noble. Um, it's just horrific. It's the worst thing I think I've seen outside of the phone hacking and 
the some other very overt lies. But this was been fed to us over a period of however long that this girl was, you know, the the lady who had jumped on the coattails of Bob Geldof, and Bob Geldof was in some way a fucking saint, you know. Bob Geldof, who is as much an absentee landlord to Ireland, enjoying the benefits of his Irishness in the same way as other absentee landlords did way, way back, who has got so much to say about how Irish people should behave and how they should, uh, what they should do, but spends most of his time um, probably dodging taxes somewhere else. And so the, the tarnished reputation, in my eyes at least, that he has, compared to how I viewed him and her way back in the day is uh, something I'm fairly embarrassed about. But it is a measure of the misogyny of the press and how they made her feel and how they reported her life, but also how they reported her death. That um, is just horrific. One of the things that I did at the time when I watched it, I was at the computer nearby, so I put put into ChatGBT um, which newspapers were involved in phone tapping. And the papers that came up with the News of the World and the Sun and um, Richard Desmond's group, which I think was the Daily Express. And I typed in afterwards and I said, um, were associated newspapers not involved? And I came back and said, no, associated newspapers were not involved in the phone tapping scandal. And then I put in, are you sure that the Mail on Sunday wasn't involved? And I came back and said, oh, I'm terribly sorry the Mail on Sunday was involved. And you're just kind of thinking the power that these media people have every day, not just back in the day, but every day to try and distort facts. And this is not conspiracy theory. Like You choose to suck up the media you want to and believe what you want to read, and that's on you entirely. But I think it's worth everybody watching that program on Polly Yates and trying to determine how you'd feel if that was your sister, your wife, your ex-wife, well, no, um, your mother or your grandmother or whatever. In fact, if it was anybody that you knew and just the way they hounded her for no reason other than the fact that she was smarter than 90% of them, that she was ballsy, that she was really, really different, that she used her sexuality in a way that most rock stars had been getting away with for decades beforehand and the audacity of her to to have that kind of confidence. But not just confidence, her, her as a character, as a person, um, she was tarnished through a lens of people who were just really jealous and the parallels with um, Diane Spencer are, are just remarkable. And the other documentary that I watched was uh, The House of Maxwell. And um, again, having spent some time in Fleet Street way back in the late 80s and early 90s, I'd been into the murder group building down at the bottom of Fleet Street or Hoborn Circus, wherever it was. And I had been in the offices. I had been in Maxwell's private box at the Albert Hall watching Eric Clapton. Um, not that I was operating at that level. That stuff was just accessible, accessible, you know. And we were all fascinated by media. The media had made the media the central focus of everybody's attention just like they do all the time like they have the ability to do all the time like Elon Musk has, has um, on, does on Twitter as Murdoch does with his newspapers as we are finding out about the BBC recently etc etc they, they, they kind of corner the truth um, they are the experts at self-promotion 
but that documentary showed the, the dark side of Maxwell leading up to his daughter's involvement in child trafficking, information for which there is nothing. There's absolutely nothing um, on the lists that she gets 20 years for her involvement in um, a human trafficking ring. And there is no... Um, so she essentially was supplying children to nobody, which is just really incredible. When newspapers want to follow um, a victim, boy, they can they can follow the victim, uh, just like they did with Polly Yates. But if they want to ignore stuff or if it's within everyone's interest at that level to ignore stuff, then that's what they do. Interesting stuff, indeed. Um, so finally, what this podcast was about, there has to be some element of sales strategy, sales training um, in the middle of it. This is really um, why anybody would want to get sales training. Maybe after listening to the topics of this podcast, why you'd want to get sales training with, with Chef Control and with me. There's three reasons that sales training needs to be considered um, as part of your business development strategy or your growth plan. And it's typically not going to be pioneered or championed by the management within your organization. You should start listening to the people that are coming into your organization. The reasons we've got a challenge with recruitment and retention these days is because um, the people that are moving from job to job, there are certain non-negotiables for them. There's certain things they won't tolerate. There's certain things they will tolerate. So the stuff that you put on your recruitment ad or the stuff you put on your about us or your culture on your website, they're kind of expecting it to be real when they arrive in the business. And part of that is the skills development. And so if you're really, really serious about skills development, then you will have a plan in place regardless if you use us for sales training or not. So the first thing that sales training can bring to your business is a little bit of inspiration and motivation. And what does that mean? What does motivation the root of the word is from Latin motivus, which is a moving cause. So um, you all want to be thinking about what your cause is, what your purpose is, why you're doing what you're doing. Why would somebody want to join your business? And what's your big plan for success over the next one, three and five years? So you need to start looking internally as to how you share that information and what it looks like. And is it really in your head? Is it on paper? Is it credible? Is it believable? Is that the the glue that will encourage people to stick around, you know? So motivation is just not having people coming in every day excited to be there. That's not really um, what this is all about. Sales training can only do that every so often. And to use an example in the automotive world, if you had to take jump leads to the battery every single day that you took the car out, would you not think it's about time you got a new battery? And so this isn't about the getting people excited and getting people inspired and motivated. You know, some business owners would argue the fact that, well, surely working for us is motivation enough or, you know, sure, that lad can motivate himself. This is about putting together an environment that makes them feel motivated when they get into work. And so part of what we do is we look at the culture, the prevailing culture, um, what that means to salespeople, what it means to everybody, how it's communicated, how authentic it is, how sincere you are with um, with the delivery of it. I was working with a company for, for, about three, for about three years, and I won't mention them in this podcast, but I might mention them at another stage about something else. But we talked about changing the culture, and so the first thing one of the directors wanted to do was go for a walk for charity. 
and that was his idea of culture because he could do that on a Saturday. And apart from it being a really, really just an all-round bad idea, it, it didn't even happen. And so, no, it did happen. It did happen, but it was the only thing that happened. And so holding the lens up um, and looking at the world through with, with impartiality is very difficult. So whenever we come in, we are able to help stimulate the thinking about um, what you're doing, what you're getting from what you're doing and how that could be better, not just in the context of sales, but in a sales environment that might um, change the way you think about the way that you're actually doing the business. The next thing would be skills development. And I'm not really going to go into it in too much detail here, but skills development obviously is very much dependent on the person or the people or the team that you're working with. What do they need? What's the starting point? What's the um, perceived threats to moving forward? How fast can you move forward? Where do you want to move to? And from that, we would determine a list of programs and modules that would help define um, the core of the sales training program, but would also be tailored to meet the needs of individual people um, done in, in, uh, based on their experience, their abilities currently, and their aspirations. So it's a very inclusive thing. Um, skills development is um, over the long term. It's it's the last thing you would want is to find out that a doctor that was operating on you was so good that he didn't do seven years at university. He only did five months, but he's really good. Um, you have to apply a sense of patience to this skills development. Probably the key word is development. And so it's going to take different people a different periods of time to to fully embrace the changes and to fully understand what it is that needs to be um, done. So we're going to suggest working with directors and with sales managers and business owners on that to put together a plan and find out what the best way of delivery is, the methodologies, whether it can be done remotely, whether it's done face-to-face, one-to-one or one-to-many, and then we kick on with it. And the final part is the accountability, and that um, puts a lot of pressure on the sales manager. Um, It also puts a lot of pressure on the owners of the business where they are really, really put in a corner to test how bad they want sales training and skills development to be part of their DNA. Because the easiest thing to do after one month, two months, three months or four months is to say that's not working. That client I was talking about, um, I was given uh, half a day to work with somebody and it didn't work out. And underneath all of the wallpapering and over the cracks was the idea that nobody was taking control of the person after the sessions. And so the accountability is really important um, horizontally and vertically. Salespeople need to hold each other accountable in the training sessions and beyond the training sessions. And in terms of the um, vertical approach, directors need to be patient, business managers and business owners need to be patient and the sales manager just needs to be on top of his game because they're the ones that are going to see the benefits of it and they're going to have to keep the checks and balances in place from session to session. The other thing I would say finally is that it's, it isn't a one-off, it can't be a one-off and whether you choose to accept that or not is something you have to do a deep dive on before you appoint anybody for sales training because the success will come over the longer period of time, the more invested you are as in the business 
and the more content you are that you've got the methodology in place, that you've got the right people in place, that you've got the right program in place, that you can check the results and the KPIs and you can see that there is some you know, a movement in the right direction. It needs to be a constant training program for everyone that comes into the business and for those people that are already in the business. It can be quite an investment of that, there's no doubt. Um, but I don't know how much money businesses are spending on recruitment right now, how ineffectual recruitment agencies are becoming, how costly they still are, and the challenges of keeping people. And if it's to be more than something cosmetic, then it needs to be something that's locked into the DNA of the business. And the onboarding program has to stop being the laptop, the mobile phone, the car, the pet, the fuel card, and a Word document. And it needs to be skills assessment, pre-interview, post-interview, after six months and ongoing forever, because developing the right kinds of skills can add real value to your business. Thanks for listening. Um, I went a wee bit off piece there, but um, it was either... The-